0: Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com/slash group curmudgeon rock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started.
1: This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by Rock Geek Iconoclastic Outsiders for Rock Geek Iconoclastic Outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. The second golden age of rock began in 1964 it became the second golden age of rock in 1965. That's what yours truly, curmudgeons, will talk about on this episode. There has arguably never been a year in rock and roll's history quite as important as 1965, and the radical change begins similarly to the story of 64, with the Beatles and Bob Dylan creating seismic shifts under the world's feet. Yet this time, the Richter scale hit just about eight rather than a mere six. When Dylan plugged in an electric guitar and blasted his way through the unbelievably great albums Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited, Folkies everywhere screamed in terror. Everyone else just marveled at the power of the songwriting and the anarchy of the mostly live-in-studio recordings. The latter population included the Beatles, Whose maturity and sophistication developed as rapidly as their fondness for Mr. Zimmerman. The rollicking pop of I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You gave way to the mellow sitar of Norwegian wood, This Bird Has Flown, and the romantic longing, in French, of My Michelle. Rubber Soul, on which both songs appear, was released in December of 1965. The album was a monumental achievement. To this day, both Rubber Soul and Highway 61 Revisited rest near the top of critical lists of the greatest albums ever made. Albums. Oh yeah, albums. That's another story of 1965. For the first time in rock and or pop, the album became a dominant art form of its own. Chuck Berry was a visionary, but his vision unfolded from single to single. Guys like him and Elvis Presley were kings of the 45, but as it turned out, there was a lot you could say over the course of 9-15 to songs that transcended the boundaries of each individual volley. Unified arrangement, larger themes, innovative engineering, sequencing for maximum emotional power. It was a lot to absorb, and then some. The Beach Boys and The Birds were among the other artists who embraced the album in 1965. We'll talk about those amazing creations too. Not everyone, though, was ready to embrace the album as literature. Other artists were too busy pissing off authority and fomenting revolutions to care. This included James Brown, who we discussed over the course of three episodes earlier this year. Soul Brother No. 1 just got bored with being soul brother number one and found new life in the form of The One, a unique structure that emphasized the heck out of the first beat in a measure and forced everything else in a song to serve that beat. Brown teased the masses in 65 with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and I Got You, I Feel Good, a one-two brick to the face that served as notice, of the full-on funk to come from Brown two years later. We'll marvel once again at the brilliance of Mr. Dynamite. Meanwhile, the Rolling Stones found their confidence as songwriters, leaving the blues covers mostly in the dust and dropping the ferocious, I can't get no satisfaction and other eternal horn dog anthems. And then there was the Who, whose raw, unharnessed power decimated the tame and inspired the wild to follow suit. My Generation, the single, and the album hit the street in 65. Those four guys hoped they died before they got old. Doesn't everyone at age 20? But Roger Daltrey shouted it out loud and yes, won his generation's hearts and minds in the process. We'll discuss the gnarliness and nihilism of the Stones, the Who, and their less durable peers, and how it all served as a preamble to punk rock. Ultimately, the most remarkable thing about our discussion of 1965, you'll find, is that we're talking about things that transpired 58 years ago. When art, when Chris and I were 15 back in 1990, did we admire the legacy of 1932 and celebrate Cole Porter and fought Fat Waller? Of course not. That was old-timey stuff from an old-timey world. So why do it with 1965? Because that year still matters, and its influence is still seen and felt everywhere in a media-saturated world whether those people or these people or our people know it or not. Even pop starlet Olivia Rodrigo does a halfway decent job of mimicking 1965's fuzzy guitars and confessional lyricism. Maybe she doesn't even realize. but. That's how deep the DNA runs in this case. That's just amazing. Now, come share in our amazement as we get started. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report.
0: So, Arturo, are you ready to uh, take a, a seat in the way, 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 way back machine?
1: Dude, I've been living there for like the past few weeks, <laughs> getting ready for this episode.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was, I was gonna say, you know, like, like we said in the opener, it's, it's kind of fascinating that we're uh, going fifty-eight years uh, uh, into, into the past, but it still matters. And yeah. uh, up, up top here, answer that question for our uh, loyal, curmudgeonly community: uh, Why does sixty-five still matter?
1: Because no matter what music you listen to. If you can backtrace the steps of influence, it eventually, if you keep going and keep going and keep going, you will get to this period in time, the mid-1960s.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say so. And and as I said in the opener, I mean, the, the second golden age, it starts in 64. It becomes the second golden age in 65, where, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it really is the, the epitome I mean, to take a spin on an old uh, saying, it's 10 pounds of gold in a five-pound <laughs> bag. Yeah. I mean, it, there's just so much. And we're going to get into it. It is a story in seven acts. And by the time you get to the seventh act, you're going to be saying, wait, that's the seventh act? That's not the first act?
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. No, there's totally.
0: Some, there's something about it. Oh, so co- uh, co- coincidentally, you know where else there uh, there's there actually is no Wayback Machine. And you know where that is? Let me the-
1: guess. The parallel universe.
0: Absolutely, uh, we've now gone through the uh, rip in the space-time continuum, and we're now in the parallel universe where, after having uh, ventured here for the better part of three years, I've finally figured out there is no such thing as time in the parallel universe. That's so- a good thing. I
1: mean, we, we got to get some physicists and, uh, and 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 you know, theoreticians in here and uh, talk to us about this.
0: Yeah, where Enrico Fermi at? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. So, yeah, so the new artists are on the billboards and in the stadiums, but so are the old artists. So like Bob Dylan is, is, is sharing a stage with the folks that we'll be talking about on this segment. Uh, folks, we do this every episode, and this is a fancy way of saying that we're covering new and newish albums uh, by uh, contemporary artists that we think are at least interesting But in this case, we're going to say uh, they're really, really good uh, for the most part. And uh, uh, surprisingly enough, Arturo is not covering anything by GOAT this week or uh, in this episode. So, uh, Art, who you got in the parallel universe?
1: Yes. Hailing from Devon, England, Pale Blue Eyes is a new up-and-coming quartet led by the husband and wife duo of Matt and Lucy Board. This House is their second album after their debut album, Souvenirs, uh, from last year. Their decidedly alternative rock sound can be described as merging the incessant driving motorik rhythms of 1970s uh, kraut rock, for lack of a better word, with trippy, spacey synth pop. The result is something akin to 1980s Hawkwind, but with more overt hooks and earworm melodies. It isn't the most original-sounding concoction around, but in a decidedly and increasingly mediocre year for new music, just being good enough is well, good enough. Yep. <laughs> this is especially true if you can manage to get past Matt Board's excessively wussy, emasculated, soft indie boy voice recommended tracks are simmering the unusually rocking our history and the blissful million times over it's not in my top 10 of the year but it's a solid three and a half star album chris
0: boy that 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 was the epitome of lukewarm dude uh (laughs) but but and and i'm kind of on the same uh the same wavelength i do like the song simmering i think that that's a solid uh yeah uh proto single uh but all I can say is that someone who's been listening to a whole lot of Gary Newman. Uh, <laughs> There's I, a
1: bit of that here too. Yeah. Maybe, I, I, I do With think, more driving rhythms and a little more guitar.
0: Yeah. It's not quite as ethereal, but it's, uh, it's got, it's like basically if Gary Newman adopted motorique, uh, <laughs> I, I think that that's kind of same thing. And, you know, you kind of said it that the, this is a well that a lot of people are uh, diving into now, the sort of yeah. early eighties. Uh, synth poppy kind of thing, although they do it better because they do the more European uh, earlier slice of it as in the seventy nine eighty slice and the more, you know, like the more British uh, stuff. So I'll give them that. But I got to say, I'm pretty much predisposed to be bored. Yeah, pun intended. uh, (laughs) Automatically, when I hear another album uh, in this vein, I guess the one difference is the songs themselves are a little bit better than average. Sure, uh, sure. Like I don't necessarily get the love for Alves. Uh, they're, they're they're kind of an it band for yeah. the uh, the intelligentsia these days. I don't understand that uh, completely. Uh, Japanese breakfast I get only because what's her face is such a compelling character. Alves I don't now. Uh, here's something that I never thought we would get on this show. Uh, making a transition. Uh, speaking of lukewarm. Courtney Barnett's new record, End of the Day, uh, which is just a really strange thing uh, to say, because uh, as uh, longtime listeners know, Courtney Barnett, who, who is an Australian, uh, almost genius level singer, songwriter, guitarist, is a favorite modern uh, modern artist of yours truly, Curmudgeon's. Uh, to borrow the descriptive hook I used, uh, used for our episodes, uh, on which one of the world's most astute and inspired songwriters and lyricists and one of its own most unabashed rockers as choose songwriting, lyrics, and rockers for improvised mood music, uh, choosing whales and drones of guitar over anything autobiographical to score a movie about her life and career called Anonymous Club. Now, the name of the album itself is End of the Day. And I think Arturo and I have agreed that this is basically a transitional record, yeah. or just sort of a um, an experiment or a uh, a futzing around type of record. Uh, like her last record, it takes time. Uh, it takes time. I yeah. believe it was called. Uh, yeah. It was uh, a really uh, a really strong record about uh, isolation uh, and breaking
1: know, up and breaking <laughs> up
0: during COVID. Right. Uh, so and it's called it it takes it things take time take time is the name of the right. record uh here you just get more wells of melancholy and a, a continued case of the feels. uh but this is designed as a compo- compositional score music which is weird because it's her to her own documentary it's yeah. a documentary about her but she. Chooses- but I read.
1: I read. I read somewhere it wasn't used for the documentary there, yeah. and that's why she decided to release it on her own as an album.
0: Yeah, and so, but it comes out of a jam session that her and uh, Warpaint's drummer Stella McGowen, who's a great drummer, yeah. but here right. she's on synthesizer. Yeah. Uh, so they they basically sat there watched a uh, a cut of Anonymous Club on a giant screen, and did a jam to it. But uh, if she's lived any joyous notes in her life. Uh, she leaves those out almost uh, entirely here. In turn, mm. she instead she turns plaintive and contemplative. Uh it's not maudlin, but there's also little inherent hope. It's 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 basically it's a it's a guitar and synthesizer. It's very uh it's very unmoored, and yeah. it's uh, it's basically comes out of the same motif and it and it's this very uh solemn, very mid-tempo, and at times I gotta say, boring. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, exploration of guitar tones and uh, and whales. Uh, you know, maybe she puts a whole lot of stock in that whole anonymous thing in the name Anonymous Club, but either way, uh, this is music to write a journal entry to, yeah, or with to engage in some meditative breathing.
1: I mean, I guess that's
0: <laughs> that's really its uh, its main uh, its main charm. Uh, the nearly six minute long "Get On With It," which is near the record's end, is about the only thing that resembles the riff and the backing to what could be a standalone song in Barnett's own formidable tradition. Yeah. Uh, the rest really is about setting a tone and expressing her own heavy heart in heavy terms. Uh, and I mean, that's emotionally heavy, not musically heavy. Uh, yeah. It's uh, The album's worth checking out, only if only to marvel at some unexpected versatility and risk-taking from Barnett, who mm. is still one of the world's most underrated guitarists. Uh, obviously, it's miles away from Barnett's mas- uh, masterpiece uh, 2015's Sometimes I sit and think, and sometimes I just sit, which is definitely one of the best records of the 2010s. But, hey, uh, the chops are still here, even if form and majesty are not. Ultimately, End of the Day is closer to Neil Young's similarly haunted 1995 score, Dead Man no. than anything. Although right. Dead, Ma- Dead Man is miles better, <laughs> to, it to, is. To, to be, and to be Dead frank. Man is.
1: Dead Man also has more variety to it. It's not just... Yeah. Neil going wow, for an hour. There's other stuff going on. There's a narr- <laughs> yeah. there, there, there's, there's voiceover narration from the film. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's Mick. It's it's uh, it's got more uh, variety to it. Like I said, yeah. And he busts this, out the pipe organ for sure. He, yeah, I know. With this album, um, it's just ugh. basically it's forty minutes of Courtney mostly tuning her guitar because that's that's what it sounds yeah. like.
0: Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you. So darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com groups slash curmudgeon rock.
1: Well, as with all things related to the second golden age of rock, we have to start with the Beatles. That is a requisite. They were the defining band of the era and arguably the greatest band of all time. And 1965, you know, as you're going to get into, Chris, this really does mark the year where they consciously, they themselves consciously transition from being a teeny bopper group to serious, quote unquote, rock band, right? Yeah, and here's the thing, even
0: if they only did 64, they'd still be the Beatles, but it was 65 that turned them into the Beatles uh, and and really made them the legends that they are. So my job here is not to tell you that Help and Rubber Soul are great albums. You probably already know that. Rather, I am here to marvel at the accomplishment of what they pulled off in 1965. By the very end of 1965, uh, they released Rubber Soul in December of that year. The Beatles had opened a cosmic door for anyone and everyone to walk through. They had unrolled a canvas on which musical artists could paint their souls and minds. Bob Dylan may have turned the Beatles onto marijuana, but even rock and roll's Bard could not have anticipated the box of imagination and curiosity he helped open. This went beyond literature and approached something of a religious experience. Uh, The leaps and bounds of Help and Rubber Soul are truly magnificent. Hell, the leaps and bounds between Help and Rubber Soul alone dropped my jaw. Uh, Paul McCartney did not just slap a four string quartet onto the ballad yesterday, still the most covered song in history. He expanded and maybe even exploded the boundaries of a two minute pop song. Pop had never been this baroque and has rarely been as Baroque since. He also turned longing into its own genre with My Michelle, turning to the French language to make his sonic depression truly boundless. John Lennon, in turn, made an equally revolutionary turn as an artist, dabbling in a rich, transcendent, lyrical sophistication. The fact that, yeah, you got that something I think you'll understand, morphed into, I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me, She showed me her room, isn't it good Norwegian wood? In less than two years, is astonishing. Lennon also reached into an untapped existential realm, moving past romance towards stoic heartbreak on You've Got to Hide Your Love, You've Got to Hide Yourself Away, loneliness with Nowhere Man, and emotional reflection with In My Life. Even the sly, silly pop songs like Drive My Car, Ticket to Ride, and I'm Looking Through You featured shape and texture that are hard to describe adequately in words. The middle song there is so richly and cleverly rendered that calling it silly may be an insult. I mean, it did inspire the Scooby-Doo theme song, so there is some (laughs) silliness there. Uh, Again, uh, this all was a monumental feat. Not bad for a couple of guys who had yet to reach their late 20s. We're talking Lennon and McCartney here. Uh, Harrison uh, also had some contributions, but they're not nearly as strong. Uh, Rubber Soul is probably one of my five favorite albums of all time. Another one of them is coming up here shortly or uh, soon uh, in the episode. Uh, Rubber Soul really is the album as mood and the album as mind. I'll let uh, Rolling Stone's Rob Sheffield, perhaps the best chronicler or best writer about the Beatles in the world, uh, capture its spirit better than I can. Quote, if there's a theme, it's curiosity the most beatlesque of emotions and specifically it is curious curiosity about women the most beatlesque of mysteries to be curious about rubber soul has the coolest girls of any beatles record girl i'm looking through you if i needed someone these are complex and baffling females much like the ones the beatles ended up with in real life no happy romantic endings here with the notable exception of in my life but even when the girls are way ahead of them, the boys spend the album straining to keep up. Baby, you've changed. Yes, they have. And yes, they did. And so did popular music as a result. What a sensation, right, Arturo?
1: Yeah, I think uh, you're mentioning a lot of rubber soul there. When people talk about the great Beatles albums, help tends to get uh, overlooked a lot. Yeah, it does. Um, it, oh rubber soul is the one that gets spoken of as the turning point album bullshit the turning point album was help and uh of course the movie was a bit corny and cheesy but we're not talking about the movie the music on its own stands alone you mentioned uh mccartney's uh, yesterday don't forget lennon's ticket to ride with those heavy yeah. droning guitars that kind of predates psychedelic rock yeah uh, it is
0: pretty revolutionary what he did on that song
1: yeah. Yeah, the emotional vulnerability of help, the song help itself. It's kind of, you know, he he was doing the existential cry before Nowhere Man on the song help. Um, you also have some other great songs on there. You have, uh, I, I, you've got to hide your love away. That that's that yeah. self loathing in, in in romance. That that's you know, not... Lennon. For as brilliant as McCartney was, Lennon always had the edge as a lyricist. Whereas McCartney may have had the edge as a musician, Lennon always had it with his wordplay. So I, I, I think Help Help always gets overlooked. It's the real it's the real turning point record. The only problem with Help is that. Harrison, and even Lennon admitted this in interviews later on, that Harrison had not quite developed as a songwriter yet at this point. He would get there later a little bit on Rubber Soul and would get there yeah. with Revolver. And But yeah, the two tracks he submits to help really aren't that good. But the rest of the material is so damn strong. Even the, even the, the song Dizzy Miss Lizzie, which is a cover.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, great cover.
1: Even that song is phenomenal, Proving the Beatles – did rock and roll covers and RB covers as well as the stones did. Uh, it's a, it's a masterpiece that really needs to be spoken about more. I have it number five on my personal pantheon of Beatles albums.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm not trying to, I wasn't trying to give help short shrift. I'm just making the point that the, the leap between help and rubber soul is, is as yeah. pronounced as the leap sure. between uh, between Beatles for sale and help. And, yeah, yeah. and so, I mean, just the leaps that they were taking uh, are right. just, bounds ahead i will say that help has one of my favorite ringo star vocals on it mm. uh you know there is there is some good uh like i said there is some great pop on there uh there are a couple of throwaways uh, mostly the harrison stuff um uh, mm-hmm. but yeah you've got the hydro level way is one of uh, i it it's one of my favorite uh, lennon songs i think it's one of his stronger melodic uh, mm, yeah. uh outputs of it so yeah you're right i mean i can't i can't necessarily i'm not trying to push help yeah, to the yeah. sidelines But rubber soul is like just such an amazing accomplishment that it 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 deserves, uh, it deserves its own. I mean, let's just put it this way: put that album in bamboo, and or not one of my not bamboo. uh, What what is that shit? Um, uh, Amber. Amber, (laughs) yes. Put it in amber and put it
1: in bamboo. I like Kaplan.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that, that would be a little less durable than Amber, for sure. But put it in Amber so that 3,000 years from now, the aliens can look at it and yeah. um, and say, hey, that was a marvelous record. That is an all-time uh, great record. Uh, uh, every time I listen to it, I get the feels. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's what I can say. So uh, what a year. Uh, what a year by the Beatles. And it's just, sure. I don't think anybody's quite, well, besides uh, a couple besides everybody else on this list i don't think everybody's quite had a 12 had a 12 months uh yeah. quite, quite like they did uh in 65 yeah. and uh yeah wow. and and so yeah and so uh, i guess that sets up our nest artist who also had a yeah. hell of a 1965
1: oh yeah at the beginning of this year the rolling stones were already huge in the uk and europe clearly the number 2 band to the beatles dominance and more importantly They were the down and dirty, tussled, bad, they had that down and dirty, tussled, bad boy image that was in stark contrast to what was, at the time, the Beatles' squeaky clean image. In the U.S., though, they were quite down the totem pole of British rock contenders caught somewhere between the kinks and the animals. At least the animals had a number one hit with House of the Rising Sun, which we talked about in the previous Golden Age episode uh, in this uh, series. The biggest dent the Stones had on the American charts at this time was Time is on My Side, one of the seemingly endless string of blues, early rock and roll and R&B covers that dominated their repertoire. But the notion of covers versus originals is where things start to change for the Stones. Under pressure from manager Andrew Lug Oldham due to the inarguable point that more original songs meant more income from publishing <laughs> songwriting royalties. You know what I'm saying? A pretty important part. Uh, singer Mick Jagger and guitarist Keith Richards took a more assertive outlook on coming up with original material. Of course, this would in time alienate band founder and guitarist Brian Jones, nominally the leader of the band since he was never much of a songwriter to begin with. Uh, This would in the long term have a corrosive effect on his psyche and confidence, leading to increased drug abuse and self-destructive behavior, but that starts to become a bigger part of the Stones story later on. When discussing the Stones during this time, it's best to discuss them in the context of them being a singles band, rather than as an albums band. While they did put out good solid albums, even this early in their career, they paled in comparison to what the Beatles were achieving on that format. The Stones wouldn't become an unassailably great albums band until 1966 with Aftermath, uh, their first album of all original songs. Their first major shot fired in this direction as a band composing their own original songs was Heart of Stone, released as a single in December of 64 and appearing on their album The Rolling Stones Now from early 65. It hit number 19 in the U.S. singles chart and charted well in several other countries, galvanizing the band and providing necessary confidence. It's a smoldering, slow-burn R&B number in the style of time is on my side except this one is original but while that song combined a desperate yearning and meditative patience with the the reward of romantic fulfillment down the road heart of stone is an early example of Mick Jagger's ferocious lyrical bite and his standoffish put down attitude toward the female subjects of his attention you know she'll never break his heart of stone you know (laughs) Um, The Rolling Stones took their now patented anti-love stance to the extreme with the one-two punch of the single The Last Time and its B-side play with fire. With Keith Richards' circular, repetitive, menacing riff, The Last Time is the band's roughest, toughest sounding track to date, setting the bar high for all aspiring garage rock bands at this time. Agreed. While while ostensibly a tender acoustic track that could easily be confused for a ballad, any cursory listen to the lyrics on Play With Fire betrays some of Jagger's nastiest, cruelest sentiments yet. He really, really doesn't like this rich girl with the shiny diamonds, <laughs> the pretty clothes, and the chauffeur. You know, don't mess with him because you'll be playing with fire. While by today's standards, and even those back then, the song can be construed as misogynist, back then, and maybe even now, it spoke to the class divide and conflict that's way at the front of British life and culture. The last time was a massive international hit, hitting number one in the UK, the top 10 in many other countries, and going as far as number nine in the U.S., In doing so, it set the Stones up for the monumental turning point in their career that would have put them right alongside the Beatles for commercial dominance and pop cultural relevance. Frankly, there's little I can say about the song Satisfaction, or in parentheses, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, that hasn't been endlessly written about by music scholars throughout the years. Aside from being a worldwide number one smash and one of their two or three signature songs, Its groundbreaking aggression established the Rolling Stones, perhaps forever, as rock and roll's eternal bad boys. And it is a pop cultural landmark, not just of the 1960s, but of the entire 20th century as well. In addition... Uh, Richard's punishing use of the fuzz pedal for his guitar was incredibly influential to legions of punkish, aggressive garage rock bands all over the world who exploited that sound for all it was worth. Satisfaction, The Last Time, and Play With Fire are all packaged on the album released in the middle of 65, Out of Our Heads. Now, how did The Stones follow up one of the greatest rock and roll and pop singles of all time? by producing another classic and worldwide number one smash with Get Off of My Cloud. On Satisfaction, Jagger turned his attention away from women and toward the suffocating effects of relentless societal consumerism and commercialism, instantly making the Stones counterculture heroes. On Get Off of My Cloud, Jagger turns his disillusionment with the smothering attention that his newfound fame has brought and somehow turns it into a universal anthem of post-teenaged alienation and frustration. And musically, rather than Richard's riff or Brian Jones' exotic arrangements, it's drummer Charlie Watts' unusual drumming pattern that steals the show, with its hypnotic alternation of 4-4 rhythm and staccato drum fills. And finally, to end The Stones' unbelievable run of singles in 1965, they proved they weren't all about raging guitars, raging hormones, and piss and vinegar by putting out their belated version of As Tears Go By. This is a song Jagger and Richards wrote for Marianne Faithful and was a huge hit for her the previous year. The Stones version is just as tender and moving of a folk ballad of forlorn, desperate loneliness with the stomping Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts rhythm section replaced by a weepy string quartet. This wasn't the last time the Jagger-Richards songwriting partnership showed its vulnerable, romantic, sympathetic side An aspect of the duo that even to this day is much underrated and overshadowed by the rocking riffs and salacious lyrics. Chris, what say you about the Stones in 65?
0: Yeah, uh, as far as I know from documentaries and biographies, As Tears Go By was actually the first song they ever wrote uh, together together. Yeah. And not a bad first effort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for guys that didn't know what they were doing, that's a hell that's yeah. a hell of a song. So I mm. I'm, I'm going to just uh, really focus on uh satisfaction and just sort of mm. the uh uh what it meant and how it kind of defined uh the Stones. Uh yeah. it's it's still rock's greatest riff. Uh you know, you can't you can't beat it. Uh definitely its most important. Uh mm. it it just sort of uh really kind of captured that Carnal spirit of uh, the, that rock and roll uh, can, can really capture. And so it kind of takes the old bluesman and you know, really just puts it on a razor wire on an electric guitar. And it's, it's, it's like the greatest thesis of uh, the Mississippi blues riff as done by British guys of all time <laughs> uh, for sure. And here's an ironic quote for you that I found in my research then this is from Mick Jagger, and he must have been, you know, let's say, this is late '60s, early '70s. He says, "quote I'd rather be dead than singing satisfaction when I'm 45." <laughs> well, now they're like 80 years old, and they're still singing it. Yeah. Ew, uh, yes. that's a little creepy. I don't want 80 year old men, uh, you know, talk, t- you know, talking about how they love fucking um and here's another great jagger quote that i really think kind of captures what this band was about and their, their kind of spirit as they went along uh quote you start out playing rock and roll so you can have sex and do drugs but you end up doing drugs so you can still play rock and roll and have sex
1: <laughs> yeah
0: so that really uh that really says it uh, i would love off- to
1: have that lifestyle jesus
0: yeah i was gonna say you know like you, you and i are doing it all wrong dude we, yeah, we, sign you know, me up <laughs> yeah you know we're we're, we're, we're a couple old boring old nerds uh by comparison uh i've never been a huge fan of get off my cloud by the way i've always kind of seen it as kind of a dopey song yeah you're right it's got a great beat to it but it otherwise it's just kind of doopy do, doopy dopey dowpy whatever you want to call it you know hey hey you you get off of my cloud hey <laughs> hey you you be more original
1: uh, <laughs> i i got a good joke what's that What's the difference between Mick Jagger and a Scotsman? What's that? Mick Jagger says, hey, you get off of my cloud. A Scotsman says, hey, McLeod, get off of my you.
0: <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Oh, the, oh, the, the, the woke crowd is going to come after us after us with uh, pitchforks and torches. Dude,
1: no one cares about sheep fucking. Come on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I was going to say, well, except for people who like advocate for the the humane treatment of sheep uh, (laughs) and and that there are plenty of those people. It's a little scary. Uh, One last comment. This is when Andrew Lou Goldham is producing the stones. Uh, Wasn't much of a producer and a lot of these songs are stripped of their pure power, but The power is so powerful, it still shines through and so It
1: transcends the production. Yeah. It does
0: transcend the production. So this, th- this shows you just how on they were in 65 and how on they would stay until about 74. Uh
1: yeah.
0: and before they started flipping a bleeping and becoming your corporate uh your corporate whores uh that they have been for what <laughs> 42 years now. Uh <laughs> I can't believe they just released another album, uh, which makes me ask who the fuck wanted that? Where 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 was the demand?
1: Well, I mean, I mean I, I, they're old. They're old. They see the end is near, so they want to pump out as much as possible. You know.
0: Yeah, isn't their core fan base dead though?
1: <laughs> you believe it or not, they have a lot of fans in their 60s. You know, uh, guy yeah. people, uh, men and women in their 60s who you know love the Stones. Well, there's there's guys
0: are uh, well people our age too. Uh, yeah. I guess I guess we're we're kind of the outer edge of people who truly care about the Stones. So. Yeah. Hey, more power to them, and they'll, they'll make their gazillion dollars. If Taylor Swift can charge 5,000, so can they can charge at least 4,000. So, yeah, th- there you go. So, uh, now we go from Britain, uh, back to America, uh, correct, Arturo?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, probably, probably the, the, only, the only person, uh, from America during this time who could like just stand up to the Beatles and the Stones.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, and he could stand up to the Beatles and the Stones, but he also was he he's kind of like you know you know how like in batman cartoons you always have the villain and you have the joker and the joker is kind of like the meta villain and the meta he kind of yeah. hangs over everything
1: yeah uh,
0: bob dylan's like the joker uh of of this period he, he he's kind of hovering above everything and kind of influencing and pulling the strings because he's the innovator he's yeah. the one that's introducing the lyricism he's the one that's introducing the sort of the melodic sensibilities he's the one that's melding folk with rock with blues and, you know, he he's the one that's uh, that's turning the uh, the knobs on the kaleidoscope. Yeah. Uh, and I think that and in 1965, we have rock's greatest or mo- most profound headline. Bob Dylan goes electric.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Although uh,
0: his accomplishments from this year uh, go much uh, further than that. So let's get into it. Uh, Bob Dylan truly was not going to work on Maggie's Maggie's farm no more. And Maggie was pissed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even when uh, Dylan was positioned as the heir apparent to Woody Guthrie, he had no use for rules. Uh, Realized that 1961's The Free Will and Bob Dylan has as many love songs on it as it does songs of protest and polemics. And that becomes pretty apparent. So should the world have been as shocked as it was when Dylan plugged his anarchic soul into an amplifier and embraced electric rock and roll? Nope. Did Pete Seeger look foolish blowing a fit at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival when Dylan and his guitarist Mike Bloomfield came out blasting? Yep. (laughs) And it seems ridiculous to us curmudgeons born well after this era that anyone would have held uh, an artist like Bob Dylan to anything resembling narrow expectations. I mean, of course Dylan had the rollicking outlaw blues in him. He did feel like just like Jesse James, after all, And he always did. And of course, he had a case of the Tombstone Blues. The fact that your knowledge was useless and pointless was always a point with Dylan. Uh, With that said, uh, let's focus on two albums, Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited, uh, two albums that belong on anybody's uh, reasonable list of the top 100 albums ever made. Let's start with Bringing It All Back Home, uh, which may be Dylan's funniest album. Uh, Even a perhaps not in his right mind, Dylan can't help cracking up at his first attempt to blast into Bob Dylan's 115 uh, dream. Mm -hmm. And with a line like, I was riding on the Mayflower when I thought I spied some land, I yelled for Captain Arab, I have you understand, who came a-running to the deck, said, boys, forget the whale, we're going over yonder, cut the engines, change the sails. Paul on the bowline. we sang that melody like all tough sailors do when they are far away from sea. And who could blame him? The album uh, is a romp through Dylan's mind at perhaps its least linear or is that its most stoned. Uh, Album opener, Subterranean Homesick Blues, as famous for its video in which Dylan flips cue cards featuring words from uh, each line of the song, is a wiseacre ode to being broke complete with the immortal line, the man in the coonskin cap in a pig pen wants $11. You only got 10. Uh, He presents his finest melody, I think, with Mr. Tambourine Man, a surreal trip through out of sight, out of mind inertia that Dylan unwittingly introduced to the world as a pop masterpiece. More on that later. The song also tucks surprisingly supple electric guitar notes into the coda of an otherwise acoustic rendering. Even in the crevices, Dylan was finding finding space for his new love for rock and roll. Ironically, the album's two best songs are its dynamic acoustic closers. It's all right. Ma, I'm only bleeding is an intense excoriation of authority and convention. Even the president of the United States is left unspared, left naked even quote. But though the masters make the rules for the wise men and the fools, I got nothing. Ma to live up to. Ouch. Uh, And lyrics don't get much better at the time of this album's release than those to It's all over now, baby blue, which closes the album. Uh, It's a magnificent scene setter of one comeuppance after another quote, all you see six, all your C six sailors, they are rowing home. Your empty handed armies are going home. Your lover who just walked out the door has taken all his blankets from the floor. The carpet too is moving under you. And it's all over now, baby blue. Wow. And then naturally, the lyrics got much better on next, uh, Dylan's next album from 1965, Highway 61 Revisited. And the proceedings grew only, only grew more electric and electrifying. Recorded Manhattan amazingly in only six days or six recording sessions, the album is inarguably one of the greatest albums ever made. And in this curmudgeon's view is absolutely the best album ever made. It is a marvelous romp through intricately crafted blues and folk-inflicted rockers with lyrics so celestial they can be about anything you want them to be. On all but one song, Dylan is accompanied by eight-session musicians who find the arrangements on the fly and do so loudly on early live-in-the-studio takes. Uh, this wasn't no Steely Dan affair or a Beatles fair affair, for that matter. These guys nailed the songs. And nailed the songs hard. If there's a theme at play here, it's the process young people endure to find themselves by losing themselves first. Hell, the protagonist does that literally on the ballad of a thin man. Quote, because something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? End quote. Now, for the uninitiated, this is the album with Like a Rolling Stone on it. The song is driven by an organ line played by a guy, Al Cooper, who had never actually played organ before these recording sessions. How's that for freeform? Uh, Rolling Stone is an incredibly bold way to start an album. An oddly joyous romp about a sad sack of shit that, depending on the day you listen, is rendered with either sympathy or scorn. Now, is calling a dude a Napoleon in rags, a lament or a condemnation? It's honestly hard to tell, and that amazes me. Uh, my favorite. I always, thought,
1: I always thought he was right talking about a woman in like a Rolling Stone. You you think so? Yeah, I always I, I always interpreted he's talking about a woman who is fallen down from grace. Huh. And there's another song like that on there, like a Queen Jane, approximately. Oh yeah, kind of- I mean,
0: well, that that undoubtedly is about the downfall of a powerful woman. But I, I yeah. for, for whatever reason, I always interpreted. And I always found uh, Like a Rolling Stone to be very male. And that's because of that Napoleon and Rags reference. I Could
1: think. be. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely. Uh, my favorite lyric uh, moving on from uh, Highway 61 Revisited is probably the best goof on biz- biblical lore in
1: mm-hmm. the
0: rock canon. Uh, mm-hmm. Check this out from the title track. Quote, God said to Abraham, kill me, a son. Apes say, man, you must be putting me on. God say, no, apes say what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but next time when you see me coming, you better run. Abe said, where do you want this killing done? God said, out on Highway 61. Man, Highway 61 is messed up, yo. (laughs) Now, the album ends with one of Dylan's most poignant and universal folk ballads. Uh, This is uh, the one where the band kind of ratchets it down, and it's mostly acoustic. Desolation Row is an 11-minute, 21-second acoustic elegy to losers, misunderstood historical figures, and literary characters who find themselves longing for a better carnival. Things get surreal quickly and often. Romeo and Cinderella meeting on the street. Einstein disguised as Robin Hood walking alongside a jealous monk. Ophelia fixing her gaze upon Noah's rainbow. Here, Dylan is as much of a painter as a poet. There's nothing else quite like it in, in Rock. And it grows richer with each listen for me. Even now, after 25 years of listening to this album with a pretty strong regularity, I listen to this album like probably once every couple months. Uh, by 65's end, it was plainly obvious that Bob Dylan would never be what you wanted him to be. And he'd serve up whatever excited him well before anything that excited you. In our view, he remains rock's great revolutionary even if he never released music after this marvelous 1965, that would still be the case. Arturo?
1: Yeah. um, One thing I want to mention is that for each of these albums, uh, both of each of these albums, uh, there's an outtake for each of these albums that are phenomenal, that are overlooked and bringing it all back home. There's a song called I want to be your lover that did not come out until the biograph box set of 1985. And this song is the most rollicking garage rock song he probably ever made. It rocks harder and it's arguably heavier than anything on the first half of bringing it all back home, which is saying something. It's a fantastic, just badass, not quite punk rock, but man, it's almost there. And it's a it's homoerotic to boot (laughs) with the the lines of, you know, well, the undertaker in his midnight suit says to the masked man, ain't you cute? Well, the masked man, he gets up on the shelf and he says, you ain't so bad yourself. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I don't want to be hers. I want to be yours. Yeah. You know, take that what you will. And the other uh, really outstanding outtake is from Highway 61 Revisited. This song is Positively 4th Street, which was released as a standalone single. And it was the follow-up single to Like a Rolling Stone. Like a Rolling Stone made it to the top of the charts. Positively 4th Street made it to number seven. And it was a it was a huge song. Uh, people have debated what this... It, it's a diss song. It, it, yeah. It's a fuck-off fuck song. And a lot of people have interpreted it as being about Joan Baez. Yeah. Him telling Joan Baez, you know, I'm not with you anymore. Get out, leave me alone. You embarrass me, (laughs) but blah, blah, blah. And, but it's still, it's, it's an, musically, it's an incredible song. It's very much in the vein of the sound of Highway 61 Revisited. With that organ that's just slightly behind the, slightly behind the drums, slightly behind the rhythm. And, um, it's it's one of Dylan's most searing, powerful vocals, and was a big hit for a reason. So those two yeah. songs uh, need to be also mentioned as part of the whole package of the 1965 Bob Dylan experience. On this episode, we dipped back into the second golden age of rock and analyzed the year 1965. For the next episode, we're going to analyze one of the most polarizing Hall of Fame all time great bands in history, U2. They're generally regarded as probably one of Rock's 20 best bands ever, yet they have a lot of haters out there. Frankly, they've done it to themselves. Between Bono's planet-sized ego, the atrocious quality of the albums they've put out the last 20 years, and how unashamedly corporatized they've become in the 21st century, their reputation has taken a hit among younger generations of rock fans. Yet yours truly, curmudgeons, remember a time when U2 was actually a hip, cool, cutting-edge band that produced incredible all-time great albums and timelessly great singles. For a 10-year span from 1983 to 1993, they were not only the biggest band in the world, they were arguably the best. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will put a spotlight on this period of time as the next episode will bring you Remember When You 2 Didn't Suck? Now, speaking a
0: whole uh, about smoking a whole lot of weed, introducing The Birds. Uh, a band who- with David Crosby. Yeah, a band with David Crosby. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) go figure. Yeah, that that, that's that's about as one to one correlation as rock and roll gets. Uh, uh, The Birds were an extraordinary band, and Arturo is going to tell you all about why and why their '65 contributions made this such a linchpin and such a grounding uh, year for the second golden age of rock. Arturo, go ahead.
1: Yeah, right. Back in the summer of uh, 1964 in Los Angeles. Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby were an aspiring slash struggling young folk singing trio who one day went to the movie theater to watch a film called A Hard Day's Night, featuring a new rock and roll sensation called The Beatles. In interviews throughout subsequent years, all parties involved attested to the colossal impact that movie had on them. Fast forward just one year later, and this trio became a quintet with Chris Hillman and Michael Clark on bass and drums respectively, and named themselves The Birds, with a Y rather than an I, just like The Beatles replaced the extra E with an A. When uh, What they did, as simple as it seems now, was introduce the concept of marrying the melodies, song structures, and lyricism of folk music to the rhythms and blaring guitar riffs of rock and roll. To create a rock subgenre we all now take for granted, folk rock. Now, we spoke earlier of Bob Dylan's pioneering fusion of folk music and rock and roll, but here's the difference between what Dylan did and what the Birds did Dylan came from folk, took elements of it, and jumped full bore into straight up rock and roll and very bluesy rock and roll at that, thereby arguably creating. Quote unquote rock. The birds, on the other hand, came from folk, took the same elements and fused them with elements of rock and roll to create a decidedly folk flavored variation of rock. This wasn't the only connection to Dylan that the birds had. Their masterpiece and massively impactful debut album, Mr. Tambourine Man, had no less than four covers of Dylan's songs on it. Most notably the majestic title track that foreshadows psychedelia uh, with the way it just makes the listener feel like they're levitating off the ground just by listening to the song. It went number one on both the US and UK charts and hit the top 10 in several countries throughout the world. Equally important is how singer guitarist Roger McGuinn popularized the luminescent chiming sound of the Rickenbacker guitar. The Rickenbacker had been used quite often before, most notably by George Harrison throughout the Beatles album, Beatles for Sale. But McGuinn made the guitar and that sound iconic on such a level that reverberated and still reverberates with multiple ensuing generations of bands and artists, including, you name it, Big Star, Tom Petty, R.E.M., Husker Du, The Bangles, The Smiths, Every UK yeah. indie jangle pop band from the 1980s: The Stone Roses, Matthew Sweet, Wilco, Beachwood Sparks, and even Rolling Blackouts Coastal Fever. That's cool. but, That is
0: that is quite a family tree.
1: Yeah, but there was more to the Birds than just Dylan covers. Um, the vocal harmonizing of McGuinn, Clark, Crosby, and that addictive guitar sound on the of the original Birds quintet. Gene Clark was the only member in the band at this time, who wrote songs, which meant he was the only one who had his own publishing deal, which meant he made more money than the other members. (laughs) This this was one of the factors in Clark, one of the factors in Clark leaving the band early uh, in the next year. But in 1965, though, Clark wrote five of Mr. Tambourine Band's 12 songs, the most notable of which was I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better, a blistering, rollicking slice of proto power pop that sounds as irresistible now as it did 58 years ago. There was also the Bells of Rimney, an old 1950s folk song by the legendary singer Pete Seeger, who adopted the lyrics from a 1938 poem by the Welsh poet Idris Davies. Uh, In the Bird's Hands, a song about a mining disaster in 1926 Becomes an unusually rhythmed, trippy, blissed out, chiming guitar orgy of proto hippie proportions. This wouldn't be the last time the Birds, though, would source out from Pete Seeger. In the fall of '65, the Birds put out the immortal classic single Turn, 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 another number one hit for them in the US also featured on their second album of the same name that came out that year, which was written by Seeger in 1959, and whose lyrics, except for the title of the song and the last two lines of the verses, were taken from the first eight verses of the third chapter of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, one of the defining musical artifacts of 1960s rock and pop culture. It's a pacifist, peace and love anthem before such sentiments became a common trope in pop culture and musically it's very much of the same blissful float in the air let the rickenbacker take you away majesty but with a rock and roll beat that characterized the best of the birds music during this period if you think you've heard if you think you haven't heard this song You are wrong. You've heard it just about any time a TV show, movie, or documentary uses it as the background for a segment on 1960s culture. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, The
0: the Wonder Years. It's not an accident that the scene in uh, Forrest Gump, which is really moving when uh, Tom Hanks in his military uniform and uh, Jenny in her hippie uniform uh, meet each other in the uh, the pool on the mall. Yeah, uh, there's no coincidence that Turn, Turn, Turn uh, uh, is that song. Uh, so I find it fascinating. Like Roger McGuinn is one of rock and roll's most fascinating characters in the sense yeah. that he, you know, he's not known as a songwriter, but there might not be uh, any better arranger during this period. Right. I mean, he, he, he just made he made the rough beautiful. Uh, he made the uh, despair uh, max maximal or full. Uh, mm. he, he, You know, he filled in the spaces. That's why his Bob Dylan covers are so strong is because, you know, Dylan had the melody. He had the bones of a great like melodic soaring pop song. Uh, Mr. Tambourine Man being the the, the finest example, but uh, he could take those and he could flesh them out into just these gorgeous uh, rend- renditions. And I think the Rickenbacker had a lot to do with that. And, you know, you made the point earlier that uh, he picked up the Rickenbacker because he was inspired by A Hard Day's Night and uh you know the uses by Harrison uh in, on that album and also the beatles uh the beatles for sale so yeah. uh here you know so McGuinn is kind of a meta character in that he's you know his genius was was he, is that he picked up on the genius of those other guys yeah and uh kind of made uh, uh made his own thing i'll admit i'm not a huge fan of the early uh birds uh period but the exceptional like and it comes a little bit later you know what, what what's the name of that song 8 miles high
1: oh yeah that, that's the uh, yeah. next year
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the next year. And David, that's when David Crosby was writing. Uh, so, uh, so it's just, and you know, Gene Clark stuff is pretty good, but I'm more of a fan of sweetheart of the rodeo and the country stuff. Um, And, you know, when Graham Parsons kind of came through the band real quick and uh, they kind of they, they morphed uh, there and McGwin must've been kind of a prick because I think it was a rule that nobody was allowed to, or nobody could make it through two consecutive years being in a band with him.
1: <laughs> it wasn't really a rule. It's just, it was a mixture, I guess kind of of him being a prick, but also like there are a lot of personalities and egos yeah. in that band. I mean, C- Cros- Crosby was a handful on his own.
0: Oh, I was going to say Crosby <laughs> and McGwin in the same band must've been something to behold. Uh, you know, you then, had
1: you had Gene Clark. Read about Gene Clark. He was just yeah. the nicest guy, and he was like your classic Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. Drunk, <laughs> yeah. when sober, he was the sweetest guy. When drunk, he was just this violent, you know, ass kicking, shit kicking rabble yeah. rowdy rabble rouser. You know, but but
0: he, but he was also one of those sensitive, frail ego types that you yeah, know, like couldn't couldn't take rejection. Or it's like if he he was like that perfectionistic, you know, expectations mm. uh, guy. Right so yeah. you know it's a little bit of a you know a little little bit unfortunate but it, it is just kind of funny like the history of the birds it's just like this on and off uh thing where like you said gene clark didn't make it through 66 because you know, he was the one making the money crosby got himself kicked out because he was misbehaving at um, uh, monterey pop yeah uh, and then uh, you know grant parsons came in and uh, him and McGuinn had that thing where McGuinn had to re-record all of Parsons' uh, vocals because yeah. of record uh, 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 label disputes. Yeah, and, and then of course, then they get back together in the early seventies. Then they don't. Then they get back together in seventy four, and then they don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of a it's kind of a tortured history. But yeah, yeah. sixty five is definitely important, especially if only for Mister Tambourine Man and, and Turn Turn Turn. Uh, which are just accomplishments. Uh, you know, there, there are those acts that consistently take other people's work and make it their own. Yeah. And the birds, uh, I think, have the best combination of original stuff and uh, appropriations or reinventions of other people's songs. Uh, the, the only one that might have been finer at that was uh, was Hendrix right uh you know obviously with all along the watchtower and a few other things that he uh that he was able to pull off but uh they're there hey, hey
1: joe <laughs>
0: yeah hey joe yeah duh. uh and so yeah so uh i i give the birds props uh for for uh for being that uh you're much more of a um of a of an enthusiast than I uh, than I am. Oh, this is an opportunity by the way to give a plug. Uh, what is that book that you love so much the uh, the biography? Johnny
1: Rogan is the, probably in my opinion the greatest rock or just pop music biographer of all time. He's like in his early 70s now. He's not as prolific as he used to, but he wrote the defi- the definitive uh book about the birds you should check it out. Uh, anyone, if, if you're willing to sit through 1,000 pages <laughs> of the bird's history, <laughs> um, it's, yeah. it's 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 really good. It's called Requiem for the Timeless, oh. and uh, it, it, it's it's there have been many um, uh, updated version uh, revisions of that book throughout the years. Uh, he first published it in the, in the 1970s, but there have been many, many, many updated versions. The most finalized one came out, I think, uh, sometime in, in earlier this, earlier, maybe a decade ago or a little bit before that. But it is the definitive, uh, really, really, really definitive book on the birds, if you're willing to read almost a thousand pages on the birds.
0: Yep, and uh, as has become our most uh, our new uh, tradition, uh, we will offer a link uh, to the book uh, from Frith Books as part of our show notes when we publish uh, uh, this episode. So uh, definitely uh, give that book uh, some love and give it a read. Again, if you you know, uh, let's just put it as it's an easier read than the Brothers Karamazov. So don't let the thousand pages uh, <laughs> uh, scare you off too much. Now. Uh, it's kind of funny we talk about the brothers Karamazov because we now switch to a guy who was anything but Dostoevsky. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yep. James Brown, uh, who uh, had himself a hell of a 65 too. Uh he, with, the, he had the singles. Papa's got a brand new bag and I got you. I feel good, which was the uh, kind of the, uh, the early birth it wasn't the the full-fledged uh, in a tux debut of the one but it was kind of the gestation of what we call the one uh, we talked about uh, uh, James Brown at length in a three-part series earlier this year which we definitely encourage you to check out it's a it's a detailed deep conversation about as deep as you'll get in podcast land but uh, let it let us cover uh, these songs and what Brown meant Uh, here in in 65's uh, Seismic Turns. Uh, Heading into 1965, uh, James Brown was uh, R&B and soul music's most electrifying band leader. He led a maximal touring review that cranked out moving traditional song uh, one after another. But something was percolating with Brown uh, or within Brown, boredom. Suddenly, it wasn't enough to do what everyone else was doing better than what everyone else was doing. He had to get up and do his thing. And what was that thing or, or that thing? It's never a thing with Brown. It's always a thing. The one. Now, funk, as we know it itself, didn't come into full being until 1967 when Brown's hit single cold sweat effectively changed everything. But Brown did put the one on the table for the world to check out in 1965. Uh, and again, we spoke about this on, on our series on Mr. Dynamite. But the singles Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and I Got You, I Feel Good, introduced a simple but brilliant innovation. Instead of traditional emphasis on the second and fourth beats of a measure, Brown shifted his focus to the third, uh, to the first and third beats. When his band and all of its brilliant musicians transitioned into the next measure, boy did they transition! And rhythm became Brown's thunder and lightning. It was aggressive to the point of filthy. And it was also danceable as hell. And so we got two marvelous, marvelously minimal singles out of this. Seriously, I got you. I feel good. If you've attended a wedding, you've heard it is <laughs> horns, hi-hat drumming and bass and little else. It's a pretty amazing accomplishment that it's it's such a moving and it, it's a it's a song that can fill a cavern, uh, but there's not much to it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's 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 a it's a pretty neat feat. Uh, Now, the songs were a prelude to the funk era where artists tried to out-rhythm and out-nasty the others. It was a competitive thing that uh, greatly influenced disco and hip-hop, and it all started with James Brown in 1965. Long live the Godfather of Soul. Arthur.
1: Yeah, for uh, any of you out there who are interested in more things, James Brown, more info, Please check out our earlier episode from earlier this year. It was what a three-parter, Chris. Yeah, it was a three-parter. Yes, it was, uh, it was James Brown. Uh, it wasn't James Brown, uh, James Brown, uh, a legacy or anything like that. It was James Brown. What was it called? Uh, what do we call it, Chris?
0: It, it, it was the uh, it was the the uh, the Mr. Brown.
1: the Super the Super Bad Mister Dynamite of all legacies.
0: Yeah, parts one, two, and three. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Super Bad Mister Dynamite Legacy uh yeah. that that was a nice feat of writing by yours truly.
1: <laughs> yes, it was. Thank you. <laughs> yep.
0: yeah yeah. And, and any other thoughts on Brown?
1: Yeah. um, what more can we say? I mean, like I said, uh, if you can find a way to put aside his personal history and his atrocious history of physical abuse toward women, and there's quite a bit of it, oh, yeah, very much so unfortunately and just focus on the man's music. He is, I mean, start starting a little bit beforehand, but this is the real start of it. He's one of arguably one of the five most important American musical figures of the 20th century.
0: Yeah, really pro- probably inarguably. Yeah, uh, Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's tough to say that uh, there was a, a more of an innovation that that mattered uh, as, as yeah. much as the one since, cause like right. from 1970 on, I mean, pretty much all of music can be wrapped around it. Uh, right. It's pretty, pretty extraordinary. So uh, we move on from the epitome of uh, drugs, rock and roll and sexual abuse to just plain old drugs and rock and roll uh, <laughs> proto-punk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Arturo talk to us a little bit about uh, the who and a series of bands that weren't, uh, and one hit wonders that weren't quite as durable uh without the who uh i probably wouldn't be as much of a rock and roll enthusiast uh i had a real passion for them when i was a freshman and sophomore uh, in in college uh you know eddie vetter always says that the who saved his life they didn't quite save mine but they sure as hell defined it or, or helped define it for sure
1: For me, was it was an eighth grade. Uh, The Who's Who's next. The Who and Led Zeppelin were the first cassettes I ever bought on my own. Well, you know,
0: (laughs) but you know, you had a brother that was climbing uh, light towers on on and rock and roll shows, so you had kind of more of an inside source than
1: I did. (laughs) Yeah. Well. Anyway, when you think of the words punk rock, what are the adjectives that come to mind? Angry, rebellious, hostile, iconoclastic. Confrontational, countercultural, revolutionary, anarchic, disaffected, disturbing, convention defying, marginalized, immediate, passionate, liberating, bombastic. Every single one of those words describe the who when they emerged from Great Britain's mod subculture in the mid 1960s with a new fresh rock and roll sound unlike any heard before. Now mod, mod, quote unquote, coming from the word modernist was a youth culture that sprouted in England in the late 1950s, mainly from the London working class. Working class in the UK back then and probably still now meant ranging from modest economic means to just poor. As a way to reinforce self-esteem, a big part of the mod credo was to wear stylish, fashionable clothes, or as stylish and fashionable as was affordable, while riding Vespa scooters. Musically, mods started out as strictly jazz fans, but as the 1960s progressed... American R&B and soul and occasionally uh, Jamaican ska became the main musical soundtrack for amphetamine-fueled all-night dance parties. This, of course, put them in adversarial conflict with that other British gang-like subculture of the time, the quote-unquote rockers. These folks were mostly motorcycle-riding, leather-wearing, greasy-haired (laughs) yabos whose listening tastes ran toward straight-up rock and roll and rockabilly. Numerous books and documentaries have been made about violent clashes between these two warring factions that happened during the early 1960s. However, by the middle of the decade, the mods started to loosen up in many ways. First, the younger up-and-coming mods were understandably getting sick and tired of getting into fights all the time. (laughs) Second, (laughs) Second, a little drug called LSD started permeating throughout underground clubs in the UK at the time eventually making its way to the mod dances and partially substituting the ever-popular amphetamines. Third, as a result of the latter, younger generation mods started developing more of an interest in modern art and pop art, eventually influencing their clothes and musical tastes. And of course, one cannot discount the ubiquity of and the barrier-breaking impact the Beatles had on mod development. The Beatles themselves, while, while not generally violent by nature themselves in the early days, were greasy haired, leather wearing rockers who, once made over by manager Brian Epstein, started to wear mod type clothes and mod type haircuts, even including RB and soul covers in their live sets. This had to have an effect. On the younger mods coming up in the middle of the decade, and combined with the earlier developments I mentioned, formed the cultural out of the, the, the pop culture out of which emerged the four young men who became The Who. Pete Townsend, the guitarist songwriter in the group, was an art school kid and had the right sensitivity to lead what was ostensibly a mod band, i.e., playing tons of R&B soul covers into new territory that touched on rock and roll and both modernist and visual art. Before The Who, of course, there had been fast-paced, rocking, wildcat rock and roll, particularly by the likes of Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, and even Gene Vincent. But The Who were a different beast with the legitimately insane Keith Moon behind <laughs> the Drum Kit providing a Gene Krupa on crystal meth savage attack, yep. with John Entwistle keeping things grounded, yet disturbingly rumbling with his bass acting as a lead instrument, with Townsend injecting violence into the proceedings with his flashy power chord display usually ending in the actual destruction of his guitar and amplifiers on stage, and with vocalist Roger Daltrey acting as the band's menacing, thuggish frontman. The Who brought an unhinged ferocity and confrontational anger to their brand of R&B that enthralled and scared audiences in equal measure. It didn't necessarily start that way, though, at least on record. After signing to Decca Records, the same label as the Rolling Stones at the time, they put out a classic single in early 1965 called I Can't Explain, while one of the Who's most beloved songs, it is, at least according to Townsend, a bit of a shambolic ripoff of the Kinks, You Really Got Me. You don't say. (laughs) Nevertheless, that's a big part of its charm, and it hit number eight in the UK pop chart. However, It was with the following single in 65, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, that the band detonated a bomb into the British music scene and changed how rock and roll, and by this point, it's most certainly rock, and changed how it would be perceived. Starting as Speed Freak R&B turbocharged by Moon's insane drum fills, the song collapses into a middle section of dissonant, aggressive guitar feedback that predates Sonic Youth by 20 years, or at least the Velvet Underground by one year, before falling back into form and ending abruptly. It's sh- it's shocking that this kind of experimental rock made it to number ten in the UK pop chart. But then again, British fans have always been more accepting of outre music than their American counterparts. True. Yet it was with their next single that the Who made their careers and cast their reputation for as out there as anyway, anyhow, anywhere was. No one was prepared for the sheer force, power bombast and forward-looking and and liberating anarchy that my generation shoved in people's faces and ears in the late fall of 1965. This was far from r This wasn't even rock and roll. In the conventional sense, this was rock and roll put through a pop art filter, injected with a healthy dose of amphetamines, raging angsty hormones, the guitar and bass raging in your face, power chord unison, all driven by a snarling drum attack that was free jazz in a way that not even John Coltrane was doing at the time. Is that not enough for you? Check out the album track, The Ox." taken from the Hoop's debut album from late 65, also called My Generation. It's four minutes of demented instrumental surf music with Moon's by now patented chaotic drum fills augmented by Entwistle's bass, creating aggressive tones never heard before on a bass guitar, with Townsend struggling to keep up with his noisiest guitar attack. Imagine Dick Dale and the Deltones dragged to the pits of hell where they meet an acid-fried Jimi Hendrix having unholy communion with the Pixies. In a time when the Beatles were seen as cutting edge and in the middle of finishing Rubber Soul, this is what The Who were doing. It's like today putting Taylor Swift up against Ty Siegel. Yes, folks, this was The Who in 1965 forget about proto punk this was the beginning of punk rock itself and i challenge anyone to tell me otherwise chris
0: yeah i i think it's a compelling uh, a compelling argument and uh, i'm always impressed by the way i got i got to give it up to you. your uh, your sweep and your historical uh run throughs and and contextualizations on some of these things are always kind of amazing so thank you i uh, that that, that that's, that's one of this podcast's uh, secret weapons uh so with the Who, there's a few things to to talk about. Uh, Pete Townsend really was was charmed in the sense that he had the best drummer imaginable. Uh the most the creative craziest
1: dr- craziest motherfucker imaginable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But
0: yeah. the guy, the guy was gifted. I mean, the way he could do those triples and he had those rum pum pum pum-pum uh pum uh, beats. Uh, you've got the most creative bassist imaginable. And then you've got the most dramatic and versatile singer imaginable. Yeah. So that put Pete Townsend in the position of being a superhero. He could yeah. do anything he wanted because he had guys who could pull off anything. Right. Uh, so that's uh, that that's always been pretty amazing to me. And it's funny that you talk about the mods because it reminds me that I think the best distillation and and uh, treatise on mod culture is probably Quadrophenia which, mm. which came out eight years later. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and it just kind of like really gets into that mods versus rockers and, you know, the, the other side of the tracks and to sort of the uh, you know, the, struggling with the, the sort of the, the pangs of youth and trying to find yourself uh, within that scene. And so uh, it, it really is extraordinary. And I, I do buy your proto punk argument that the who uh, in effect uh, in some ways invented punk rock uh, with my generation. Although you could, I guess you could make the argument that Chuck Berry, uh, you know, with with some of his stuff. I guess,
1: uh, but that, that's a little, going back a little too far. Punk rock doesn't really identify with Chuck Berry, but you can really no, draw. No, yeah, it definitely from identifies. From my generation with the to the Sex Pistols, you know. But, but you know,
0: Chuck Berry in terms of some of the subversive stuff he was doing, like Brown Eyed Handsome Man, some of the riffing and some of the power yeah. stuff he was doing, like rock and roll music. I mean, that's that that's the Chuggaluga. Uh, and yeah, it was mm-hmm. a little too grounded in country for punk's taste, yeah, but right. you could make that argument, but yeah, I mean, I think it really does start here and it starts with here and uh, a lot of these bands that they started to catch the bug. A lot of it is the combination of the, uh, of the British invasion and the hangover from the little Richards and the Chuck where a lot of these artists went to the garage and went lo-fi and kind of went DIY. And so you had uh, uh, remember you know, the who, at first, I mean, they were competitors in a pretty broad field, which you'll talk about in a sec, but uh, you know, they're the ones, why did they survive? Cause they were the fucking best.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and mean, They're still it, around. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. So uh, speaking of, uh, of the roll call uh, there, there were some artists here that were making they, they, one hit wonders. They made some timeless, uh, timeless hits. They didn't turn out to be timeless, but they did kind of define this proto punk garage uh, launch era now, didn't yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, the Who may have been the best of this new breed of punk rock before it had a name, <laughs> but uh, there were other notable bands in both the US and UK embracing a similar sound and or energy. From Seattle, you had the Sonics and their 1965 debut album, Here Are the Sonics, which contained the unhinged, blow your mind intensity of singles such as Strik9 and Psycho. It also contains several of the same early rock and roll and R&B covers that the Rolling Stones covered in their early years, except way louder and way more intense. Uh, the Seeds came from Los Angeles and hit the charts in 65 with a snarling, nasty fuck you of a driving song called Pushin' Too Hard He's addressing a female romantic interest, but the track can easily be interpreted, like the Who's My Generation, as a generational anthem pushing back against conventional society. You had the British band called The Syndicats, who put out a single in 65 that was a cover of the Lieber Stoller song On the Horizon, but the B-side, Crawdaddy Simone... Was what this band really sounded like, very very similar to the Who in their barely controlled energy. Um, this is one of the most rollicking singles of the era, featuring guitarist Steve Howe, who would become the guitarist of Yes, uh, while. These three songs, uh, the next three songs, all came out in the following year in 1966. They were very much keeping in the spirit of the garage punk fury unleashed the previous year. This year we're talking about in 65. Wild Thing by the Trogs, everyone knows this song and if you yes. don't you need a serious musical education yes. making time by the british band the creation and the seething mid-tempo burn of 96 tears by question mark that the, the the name of the band is question mark not the word question mark but the the symbol question mark and the mysterians chris
0: yeah uh it's a pretty good roll call uh, of these songs uh, I got to give it up. Making Time is the best uh, phony uh, Who song of them all. I mean, come on. They sound like the fucking Who. And I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that's an accident uh, by yeah. that time. No, it is.
1: It is. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, the Sonics kick-ass band, the Syndicats. Uh, I love Crawdaddy uh, Simone. Uh, and uh, you also, we should also mention Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs because they did Woolly Bully.
1: Oh yeah. That, that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of soft compared to these tracks.
0: Though. Yeah. They're, it's a little bit soft, but at the same time, it is, it is coming out the garage. It is, yep. uh, it is kind of, you know, bashed out, uh, but, but, but lightly and tastefully bashed out. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is a good roll call and it it was a movement and it kept going. Like you said, it started in 65 and it was like a snowball rolling downhill in some ways because then 66, you get, you know, question mark in the Mysterians by 67, you know, you're getting into the, to the heart, into the meat of, uh, of the nuggets, uh, box yeah. set by 68, you're getting like incense and peppermints. <laughs> you know, Actually,
1: that came out in 67.
0: It did come out in 67. Yes, okay. it did. Yeah. I was going to say, cause the movie, uh, beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I think was 68, but no nope, 1970, 1970. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, our Arturo is my fact checking cause, um, mm-hmm. uh, so, I mean, it's just it, it's a phenomenal uh, thing that happened. It was a movement. Uh, the Who obviously graduated into more studio affairs and and graduated into the more ambitious stuff like uh, by Tommy. But we owe a debt of gratitude to all of these uh, these one off bands that had these uh, that had these cutesy names and <laughs> uh, you know, had that style. Uh, you know, you know, God bless the Hammond uh, B3 organ uh, mm-hmm. you know, God bless fuzzy guitars, uh, all of it. It is, it is good stuff. And, uh, one, one other thing I'll say, uh, my favorite version of wild thing, if you've ever seen the movie major league, you know what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: yes. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> yep. Wild thing. You make my heart sing. So <laughs> good stuff. So, uh, speaking of making the heart sing, uh, we get into, uh, the seventh act of our, of our story in seven acts, which is kind of amazing because the seventh act is the beach boys. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now that's quite a year (laughs) if, if they're your seventh act. So uh, they had themselves uh, this, this was the year where they kind of started to turn the corner from uh, girls, cars and surfing uh, into uh, more uh, uh, romantic uh, themes and, a little bit more uh, if, if it was that uh, steeped in California, it was a, it was a little bit more of the heart rather than of uh, of what you would call the spirit. So yeah. it was it was more heart and mind and, and less spirit. And so uh, let's talk about uh, Brian Wilson and uh, the albums Well, and the songs from the albums, The Beach Boys Today and Summer Days and Summer Nights. Uh, one point to make is that uh, by this point, the album became a thing in '65, but not everybody was embracing the album completely. Right. And so uh, I think, especially "Summer Days and Summer Nights" is more of a singles record. The Beach Boys today, I guess you could say, is 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 more unified. And so uh, the Beach Boys are still getting into the into the vibe of the album. Which is amazing because the next year they release Pet Sounds, which is, you know, one of the three year four best records uh, ever made. And I think everybody's got it on their lists uh, that way. Yeah. So uh, before Brian Wilson went into introspective meltdown mode and started making ego music, as mm-hmm. Michael of derisively called it in yeah. 1966, uh, he was an unmatched pop maestro, a genius Baroque composer disguised as a rock star and doo-wop vocal arranger. In 1965, he became the master of the three-minute symphony and the finest appropriator of Phil Spector's Wall of of Sound record technique of loading up on musicians and on multi-tracking. The songs were wonders of echo, grandeur, and sweet that put the Beach Boys into a singular stratosphere of joy. Uh, Seriously, when I think joy in rock and roll, I immediately think of of the Beach Boys. Uh, No one was ever as joyous. Even when they were in sad mode, like, wouldn't it be nice? They were joyous. Uh, Pretty, pretty amazing trick. Uh, Wilson and his bandmates released two albums in 1965, The Beach Boys Today and Summer Days and in parentheses and Summer Nights. Uh, I'll keep the description simple. The Beach Boys Today is the one with Help Me Rhonda When I Grow Up to Be a Man and Dance, Dance, Dance on it. Gems that deserve to be coated in platinum for their mastery of the art form. Complex structures. Brilliant five part harmonies, infectious choruses, testaments to the undying power of sing songiness and a compelling placement somewhere between adolescence and young adulthood in their mood. It's all there and it's all amazing. Now, Summer Days and Summer Nights is not as laden as uh, with hits, but when California Girls is on your record, who cares about the rest of the shit? California Girls is one of rock's most mythic songs and in arguably Mike Love's greatest lyrical contribution to the Beach Boys. Would the song pass today's woke test? Maybe not, but who, <laughs> care? but who cares? The women of California were pretty awesome, and this is a hell of a tribute. Famously, Wilson claims that he wrote the music to California Girls during his first acid trip. I guess acid is pretty good for one's libido. Uh, <laughs> anyway, other highlights on the record include uh, then I Kissed Her, another symphonic number contained in pop musical form and beautiful also a beautiful song, beautiful song, and also a cleaner, crisper version of Help Me Rhonda, which I think uh, maybe beyond a couple of uh, tracks uh, or songs, on Pet Sounds is their best song. Uh, I love Help Me Rhonda, and it, it, it absolutely owes itself a debt of gratitude to the composers, of the 1700s with that, uh, you know, it just really yeah. clever, cleverly done, uh, amazing five-part harmony, uh, just uh, just a beautiful song. And here it's cleaner and crisper, and it's really the version that we all know. And it's really the version that even Michael up to this day, in his uh, never-ending traveling Beach Boys road show, uh, still uh, holds on to. Uh, I mean, hell, this song is so damn good that one album could not contain its majesty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, uh, a lot of critics see the music of 65 as the Beach Boys in peak form. And that's true. So long as we place 1966 Pet Sounds in its own box of majesty and and brilliance. Uh, There isn't a band that ever pumped out as much celebration and mirth as silly fun as the Beach Boys did in 1965. And so here is the ultimate punctuation mark for 1965. It was filled with an incomprehensible amount of musical and cultural revolution. Seriously, it's five, it's 10 pounds of gold in a five pound bag uh, that we cover the Beach Boys seventh again in this episode it tells you everything you need to know about this year. Arturo uh, your thoughts on the Beach Boys and these records.
1: Yeah. We need a little postscript uh, for this year for the Beach Boys. They put out a third album, In 1965, Uh, around this time, around the fall, the record label, uh, it was Capitol, they were on Capitol Records, coerced them into basically doing an all acoustic, basically what we call unplugged now, an all acoustic album of covers. Uh, Brian Wilson really didn't want to do this because he already had in mind what he wanted to do going forward. He saw the Beach Boys going in a direction that would eventually become Pet Sounds. But of course, the record company, they want more product, more money. Yep. And out came Beach Boys Party. That's the actual name <laughs> of the album. It, uh, it it came out in November of 1965, recorded just two months earlier and done in like a couple of weeks. And it was supposed to evoke a beach party, exactly what the title of the album says. Yeah. <laughs> what, it felt, what it felt like, hanging out in a, in a in a Los Angeles, in a bungalow by the beach in LA, hanging out with the Beach Boys and them with their acoustic guitars singing cover songs. It featured uh, songs, the covers, the songs they covered, two Beatles tracks, I Should Have Known Better, and You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, sung by Dennis Wilson, of all things. Um, it also included Hully Gully by Fred Smith. It, inc- it included a Dylan cover. The Times They Are a Changing, sung by Al Jardine. Yeah, I
0: I know that version. It's not bad. It's it's a little silly, but it's not bad.
1: Uh, and, of course, they had one. Oh, uh, oh, sorry, did I mention three Lennon-McCartney songs? Tell Me Why is the other Lennon-McCartney song on this. And a monstrous hit, one of the biggest Beach Boys hit ever, a worldwide top five hit, Barbara Ann. It's it's yeah. an old doo-wop song by the Regents from 1961. The Beach Boys did it. Basically, it was Brian Wilson and Dean Torrance. It was those two yeah. doing the song, and it was a monstrous number one hit. Number one, number one in the UK. Number two in the US. Top five everywhere around the world. If you say you haven't heard it, you have. Yeah. Ba 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 Barbara and Barbara. Ba, ba. Yep. It, 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 it still makes it on the commercial. Oh, Barbara Ann. Yeah.
0: yeah. So yeah. that
1: was a massive, massive hit, which is a pretty, I mean, I like the song, but it's a pretty inauspicious way to guide us into pet sounds. But anyway, <laughs> that was what the Beach Boys where Brian Wilson was forced to do at the end of 65 and put this album out. Not very good, but hey, it's got Barbara Ann on it.
0: Yeah, which is funny because Brian Wilson and Dean Torrance in the same uh, (laughs) in in the same harmony, where it's like, okay, who who can out like uh, high note the other, you know? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Ah, Yeah. ah, you know, it just kind of of, because they they were the two uh, high register guys in the surf scene, uh, uh, the the two best uh, at that. So it 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 is uh, kind of funny. So. Uh, At the end here of this discussion of 1965, Arturo, in a paragraph, uh, uh, summarize the theme for us and, again, uh, why we should care about 65 and uh, what it meant all put together when we put these seven acts into an executive summary. Yeah,
1: 1964, the previous episode in this series was change. This one is radical change and radical and everything after this year was never the same everything was different and like i said earlier in, in 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 this episode whatever music you listen to you can trace enough points you can trace the influence points back 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 and you will eventually get to the mid-1960s and that's that's why this year matters and of course again radical change some of our most beloved favorite bands of all time turned massive corners. Beach Boys, Beatles, Dylan, uh, The Stones, Birds coming out of the block, James Brown, The Who coming out of the block. You know, it's just really it's just radical change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's still uh, radical today because why? I mean, even like some of the the starlets today, like Taylor Swift, uh, mm-hmm. you know, she's a Nashville person, but she's obviously, she's also influenced in her own weird way by Dylan yeah. uh in terms yeah. of that sort of lyrical uh, gymnastics uh that she mm-hmm. does and so i'm telling you folks i mean 65 and some of these songs like like a rolling stone nowhere man's uh uh my generation all of this stuff is still it is it 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 puts the sem in the seminal uh, uh for sure weird. it's 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 pretty amazing and so i hope that everyone has enjoyed our run through uh, through 19 uh, through 1965 uh, we've enjoyed it it was a lot of fun uh, preparing this record uh, this episode and listening to all these great records all these great albums and songs and with that said as we like to do at the end of these episodes we really want you to join our curmudgeonly community uh spirited discussions up there Arturo continues to run through his greatest uh, uh, albums of each year studio studio
1: albums. studio albums
0: studio <laughs> albums we just did 84 which was kind of a surprisingly short list considering it's like, you know, like the most important year in popular music history in terms of everything that happened but because of,
1: a lot of the great music were were singles not so yeah. much albums
0: yes yeah, mm-hmm. singles or hip-hop so i mean i yeah. guess that that explains that one. so anyway uh, join us there at facebook.com slash group slash promotion rock uh, also join us, uh, or, if, if, well, if if you have opinions, or you didn't like what we said, or or, or you like what we said, or you have your thoughts about 65, uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we love to get your fan mail. And then, yeah, we are still on X. It's a cesspool, but uh, Jason Isbell... And a few others. Uh, actually, Senator John Fetterman has been putting some really good burns, especially one on Lauren Bobert, Uh who got caught uh-huh. giving a handjob to uh, to her boyfriend in a uh, in a Denver um, and
1: and vape theater indoors
0: and and vaping. So uh, God bless her. Uh, but we're still on there, so you know, and we still uh, we still have stuff to say there. So join us there.